Welcome to the audio production of A Lesson in Swimming, written and performed by Michael Shutt. I'm the show's director and dramaturg, Diana Wyan, and we are thrilled to have you with us. In 2015, almost 800,000 Americans experienced a stroke. That same year, Michael survived three. Three strokes that left him partially paralyzed, partially blind, and partial to chocolate pudding. And now, chapter one of A Lesson in Swimming. My brain broke twice, three times, actually, possibly four, Ah, but who's counting? Once you break your brain twice, everything after that just makes you look really dramatic. The hardest part about breaking your brain is that nobody else will ever truly be able to see how deep the cracks really go. See... Broken bones get all the attention. Broken hearts get all the sympathy. But broken brains? They just leave you scared and alone with a fistful of fragments, fighting for your life as you desperately try to put the pieces back together again. I've been fighting for my life since the day I was born. Popping out almost two months premature and weighing in at barely four pounds, I've had to fight for my place in this world. I spent the first few weeks of my life in the hospital, where my parents would just come and visit me every day. I hate hospitals. I didn't want them to leave me there. I wanted them to take me home, and I wanted to be held. But they weren't ready. In fact, they were so unprepared when I was born that they hadn't even picked out a name for me. Well, sort of. So? What are you going to name your baby? Bridget! That's an odd name for a boy. Oh no, I'm going to have a girl. Mrs. Shutt, you've had a boy. My mother had blacked out, given birth, and woken up all without ever knowing she had had me. Now, when your own mother doesn't realize that she has given birth to you, you're sort of born with a desperate need for attention. The question being, how to get it. I certainly wasn't going to get it on my looks, as both my parents loved to tell me when I was born, I looked like a plucked chicken. (laughs) I wasn't going to get it on my athletic prowess either. Being both a preemie and a runt, I was always discouraged from doing anything athletic, constantly being told by everyone that I was too small and too weak to play with the other kids. I want to be strong, I wanted to scream. But screaming about something doesn't always help. So, I might never be strong. Fine. I had something none of the other kids had. The way in which I would finally get my attention. My brain. Growing up, I was always told how smart I was. When I was in first grade, my teacher, Miss Cecil Zolan, told my mother that she wished she had a classroom full of Michaels, which is a really nice thing to hear, but you don't make very many friends that way. She was also so sure that I was so advanced that she actually stopped teaching me and instead used me to help the other kids with their lessons. I became a first grade tutor in first grade. 
the son of a right-brained English teacher and a left-brained engineer, I seemed to be split right down the middle. No one at school got me. No one at home got me either. At least three or four nights a week at dinner, my father would end up yelling, Michael, don't be flip! To which I would always respond, I'm not flip! I'm right! By the end of third grade, I spoke French, played both the piano and the clarinet, and was reading books way beyond my age range. Books like Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None. (laughs) I was 11 when I first read it. I had just finished The Shining and I needed something new to read. I love Agatha Christie. Her books are like puzzles. When I'd read her books, I'd keep a pad of paper next to me on which I would make a chart. I would put all the character names down the left-hand side of the chart. And then I would have a column each for motive, opportunity, and alibi. And I would fill in the boxes as I read the book. And then I would use the chart to logically figure out who did it before Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple could tell me. I asked my mom recently how old I was when she taught me how to read. And she said, well, I never actually did. I used to read to you every day. And then one day, when you were about three or four, you became impatient with me. You took the book out of my hands and started reading it to me. (laughs) By the time you started first grade, you were already reading at a sixth grade level. You could add, subtract, multiply, and do long division too, thanks to your father. The only thing they ever needed to teach you in school was how to get along with the other kids. (laughs) And that's the one skill you never mastered. Okay, to be fair... It's not that I didn't get along with the other kids. I just didn't like them. They didn't think like I did. What was I supposed to do with them? I didn't even know how to play with my own brother. He's four years younger than I am, and all he ever wanted to do was play with his Star Wars action figures. And that never made any sense to me, because you can't win anything by playing with Star Wars action figures. There's literally nothing to win. And what's the point of playing if you can't win? I like games you can win. Games like chess, backgammon, Othello, and Parcheesi. I love games like this because, aside from just winning, there's always something valuable to learn while playing. Things like strategy, deductive reasoning, critical thinking, and problem solving. All the things I took for granted as I got older. Until... Thursday, June 4th, 2015. I'm doing what I've done every Thursday for the last 20 years. I'm working my job. A job that is not my life, but a job that allows me to have the life that I choose. A job that paid off my student loans to one of the best colleges in the country. A job that helped me put myself through grad school and get an MFA in acting. A job that allowed me to spend a year in London studying acting with the Royal Shakespeare Company. A job that provides me the freedom and flexibility to go on auditions and perform in shows whenever I want, and a job that allowed me to take three weeks off with one day's notice so I could board the National Geographic Explorer and sail from Tierra del Fuego to Antarctica. I'm bartending at the Cheesecake Factory in Beverly Hills. It's a perfect storm at the bar today. It's graduation week. The restaurant is full, and we're on a wait with a line out the door, and I'm by myself. I have a swarm of servers waiting to pick up drinks, and a bar top full of regulars that all need something immediately. 
I am very quickly, but carefully, ringing in a food order that has more modifiers than actual ingredients, while making change for a $100 bill, while making margaritas for four ladies sitting at the bar, one house rocks salt, one Cadillac rocks no salt, one skinny, but not too skinny, light on the salt, and one make me something special, but make it good, all the while having our corporate auditor standing over my shoulder questioning everything I do. Michael, when's the last time you checked the chemicals in the dishwasher? Another regular walks in. Michael, somebody's in my seat. Where am I supposed to sit? Just as the four ladies yell, Mike, four more margaritas. Baby, where are my drinks? Hey, how do I ring in a non-alcoholic dirty martini? Michael, exactly how long should a celery stalk and a Bloody Mary be? Mike, we need our margaritas, and we need separate checks, and we need to go now. A jolt of electricity shoots up from my toes all the way to and through the top of my head. I get hot. Like, really hot. I get dizzy. I grab under the bar to keep from falling over. Something cracks. The servers pick up their drinks. Corporate goes to hover over somebody else. The ladies pay their four separate, yet identically priced checks. I look up at the TV, and the French Open is on. And I remember that match last year, where two players went hours in a tiebreak. And then, because their match went so long, as soon as they finished, they both had to go immediately play doubles without ever getting to rest. For some reason, I, I, I can't remember the players' names. So I wave over our hostess. She knows everything there is to know about tennis. I point to the TV and I say, Who's the... What? I can't get words out of my mouth. I, I, I know what I'm trying to say, but I can't get the words that are in my head out of my mouth. It, it, it feels like they keep getting stuck behind my lips. Tennis. What? Tennis. I get that word out. What is wrong with you? I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm having a stroke. Oh my God. You are so dramatic. I'm not dramatic. I'm theatrically expressive. I go through the rest of the shift unable to speak. I go home and go to bed. Friday, I work another eight-hour shift without talking and go to a fundraiser that night. Saturday morning, I unsuccessfully attempt to direct a play reading where I piss off one of the actors because I can't form the words to give him notes. I drive directly from the reading to pitch my kickball team's championship playoff game where I immediately score a run for the other team. I walk the first four kickers. Shut! What's wrong with your arm? It's flopping to the left every time you pitch. No, it's not. Oh, he's still drunk from last night. I wasn't drunk last night. I didn't even drink last night. Girl, please, you were a mess. You were slurring your words and not making any sense all night. I go home, shower, but when I try to get dressed, I can't lift my leg to put on my pants. Sunday. I cook dinner with my best friend Tom, and I get very confused. 
because even after 20 years of bartending, I can't remember or figure out how to open a bottle of wine. Monday, I finally give in to multiple friends' insistent requests and drive myself to urgent care. Good afternoon. How can we help you? Well, th this is pr probably going to sound weird, but I, I can't get words out of my mouth, and I, I, I can't lift my leg. We're sending you directly to the emergency room. How can I help you? I, I just came from urgent care. They, they told me to give you these papers. Okay, come in here. Let me take your blood pressure. Well, that can't be right. Let me try your other arm. I need a bed right away! Where did I park my car? His blood pressure is 244 over 156. Who's gonna feed my cats? Are you claustrophobic? Do you have any metal on you? Do you have any metal in you? Are you wearing a pacemaker? This will take about 20 minutes. It's going to get very loud. Don't move. I wonder if they'll give me chocolate pudding. <laughs> Can you tell me your name? Michael Shutt. Can you tell me your birth date? June 21st. What year? Oh my God, I've lied about it for so long, I have no idea. Mr. Shutt, you're in intensive care. You have had a stroke, possibly three or four days ago. Your MRI also shows evidence of a previous stroke. Did you know about that? N no. Your blood pressure is more than twice what it should be. If we don't lower it immediately, you will die. If we lower it too quickly, however, you could have another stroke and die. Do you have any allergies to medications? No. Do you have anyone we should call? No. Do you have an advanced directive? No. Do you have a medical proxy? No. Have you signed a DNR? No. Do you have any questions? No. Why did you wait so long to come in? What? Why did you wait so long to come in? Well, I, I, I'm here now. That, that's good, right? You could have died. Why did you wait four days to come in? Why, why does it matter why I waited so long to come in? I, I, I made a mistake. Is that what you want to hear? I, I fucked up. Is that good enough for you? I have no idea why I waited so long to come in. Maybe because I didn't go to med school, so I don't know the warning signs of a stroke. Or maybe because it never crossed my mind I was having a stroke because I'm only 48 and I thought strokes were something that happened to 80-year-olds. Or or maybe because I've never known anyone that's had a stroke, so this isn't really within my frame of reference. Or, or, or maybe, maybe the stroke screwed up my brain and left me a little confused and I didn't actually understand what was happening. Or maybe I did understand what was happening, but I refused to believe it. Or maybe I understood what was happening and I was scared shitless of the possibility and I just wanted it to go away. Or maybe, just maybe, I didn't want to be told again that I was being dramatic. But whatever the reason was then, what good does asking, why did you wait so long to come in, do now? Fuck you! I want to scream. But instead, all I say is... I don't know.
She puts me on an IV drip of medication in an attempt to slowly lower my blood pressure. Your mother's on the phone, Tom says from across the room. Oh, Christ. She wants to know if she should fly out. They are trying to lower my blood pressure, and you're asking if I want my mother to fly out? Are you trying to kill me? <laughs> she heard that. How? She's deaf. <laughs> she, she heard that too. She also says that the stroke can't be that serious if you're still able to be such a smartass. Please remind my mother that the stroke affected my brain. The sarcasm is in my blood. I get it from her. And tell her not to come. Thanks for listening to Chapter 1 of A Lesson in Swimming. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to share, subscribe, rate, and review. If you want more, head to michaelshutt.com, where you'll find Chapter 2, the rest of the series, and more. This audio production is produced by Plainwood Productions, sound designed and engineered by John Zalewski, dramaturged and directed by me, Diana Wyan, and written and performed by Michael Shutt. It is supported in part by the California Arts Council, a state agency, and the National Arts and Disability Center at the University of California, Los Angeles.